0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The greatest crisis of our current age in a crowded field is the climate emergency. It's odd, then, that we tend to write our history books without much reference to both the impact of climate and the natural environment on humans, and vice versa. And yet, volcanic eruptions and storms, droughts and cyclical pressures have shaped human history, raising up civilizations and bringing them to their knees. Today's guest has adopted this revolutionary new way of looking at history in a work that spans approximately four and a half billion years. That book is The Earth Transformed, An Untold History. And my guest today is its author, Professor Peter Frankopan. Peter Frankopan is Professor of Global History at the University of Oxford. He's the author of best-selling books, including The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, and The New Silk Roads, The Present and Future of the World. I asked him to speak to me about a small snippet of his time span in The Earth Transformed, A mere three centuries from the 15th century CE to the 18th. Professor Peter Fragoban, welcome to Not Just the Tudors.
2: I never thought that I would get a call up for the Tudors podcast, having been a huge fan of yours for so long, Susie. And this podcast has been such a great success. But I don't think of myself as a Tudor specialist. I definitely feel like I'm going to under deliver to all your listeners today. But I'll do my best to fly the flag for the Tudor period.
1: I don't believe Peter that you ever under deliver, and actually, of course, you're sort of an expert now on all time because <laughs> your book, The Earth Transformed, is looking at such a large period of history that even to zero in on the sort of two hundred years or so in which we're interested for this podcast is to focus on you know quite a chunk of a substantial and important book. But you absolutely know your stuff. So I'm not worried at all about that. And what we're thinking about is the relationship between human activity, human history, and the environment, broadly speaking. Is that the best way of summarizing it, do you
2: think? I guess so. I mean, we both know, we've talked about this a lot. The challenge about being a historian is you have to specialize and to narrow down to be able to say things that are more detailed, more interesting than just general materials and sort of general observations. And, you know, I think one of the things that's changed since I was a graduate student you're much younger than me, Susie, so probably you were doing this already, but that when I was a young historian, you learn how to read texts and you learn how to handle some of the material culture. But the thing that's galloped forward in the last 20 years or so has been lots of materials related to the sciences and quite a lot of those are connected to climate. So being able to look at tree ring data, to be able to look at fossilised pollen, to see about how land is being disturbed, to be able to understand about carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere a kind of new set of skills. But, you know, those are disciplines that we historians need to be paying attention to. So I think one of the things I've been trying to do over the last decade or so is to familiarise myself with some of those materials and methodologies. But some of it trying to work out how do we think about things like, not just weather and climate, but things like ecologies when we think about different periods of history of different regions so you know for example in Tudor England it's quite rare sometimes there's discussion about shipbuilding and cutting down of trees for oak and where does Henry VIII get those materials from but we don't think about the iron for cannonballs we don't think about where nails come from we don't really think about the ways in which changes in Tudor England and just internally forget about with engagement with the rest of the world how those things change. And that seems to be such a fundamental question that we should be asking, because all of us in the world today know that natural resources, sustainability, all those kinds of things are hugely important, and that changes to the physical and natural environments have very dramatic impacts. So I think it's such an important question to be asking. And there's no single period, no single geography that doesn't experience change. So trying to track that is both interesting, and as it turns out, quite rewarding.
1: Yes, and it's fair to say that actually the challenge to the ecology, the climate emergency, this is the greatest issue facing us in our modern time. So it's actually very, very important to think about history through this lens. And you said it's not just about weather, but I think it might be a a good place to start with our period to think about one tiny example that just shows how something like weather can be so pivotal to moments of human history. You talk about Vienna, 1529. What happened then?
2: I'd probably just put a disclaimer in here, which is that every single event has a weather context. Every single battle you fight, every single cannonball you fire, every single catapult depends on the softness of the ground. It depends on your ability to move troops into position and how difficult it is to get food to them. So, you know, whether it's raining a lot or whether there's drought, those affect every single military decision in logistics. It's just we pick out the big signature events. I thought you were going to say the Spanish Armada and the intensity of the winds of 1588. And had that happened at a different time of the year or in a different year, perhaps the outcome would have been different. I mean, in fact, you clever stories will tell me it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever because a bunch of ships turning up off the coast of southern England wouldn't have mattered. But as it happens in the 1520s, the Ottomans are on the move in southeastern Europe. So the Ottomans, the Turks, reach into mainland Europe in the 1370s, 1380s, well before the conquest of Constantinople. Constantinople falls in 1453, and the Ottomans have a great deal of momentum at this point. It's a question of which targets they want to hit and why. And again, it's a sort of little point worth mentioning is that empires are all about ecological exploitation. There's no point conquering mountains and unfertile lands. But one of the big targets the Ottomans is Vienna, which is the gateway into Central Europe. Three years before the Battle of Mohach, the Ottomans are able to beat a combined army of, of a whole bunch of allies from all over Europe, loosely tied together, inefficient, lots of petty rivalries. Europe has been weakened by a whole set of peasant upheavals, revolutions, conquests, and problems between individual rulers. And the Ottomans decide to launch an attack on Vienna. Of course, the most famous Ottoman assault on Vienna in 1688. But in the 1520s, 1529, the Ottoman forces, very substantial in size, reach Vienna. And it looks like this might be a moment where the gateways of Europe are opened up to a force that has swept all before it for the last 300 years, led by Suleiman the Magnificent, technologically innovative, hugely inventive on the battlefields. It's the first time we see kneeling soldiers with muskets firing. And those new technologies, new innovations, catch traditional ways of doing things by surprise. Now, the problem is how do you sustain a siege? And that's something you've talked about many times on this podcast. It's quite difficult to keep morale, discipline, and above all, food and water, sanitation. So you're at a disadvantage the longer the siege goes on on the outside as much as you are on the inside. That assault that happens over two weeks in the autumn is beset with heavy rainfall, getting the Ottoman guns and cannon into position. It's very time consuming, laborious and inefficient. And arguably, things would have turned out differently, not just for the Ottomans or the Austrians, but for the rest of Europe had the Ottomans started a couple of months earlier. So these things, I think, are really important, both in terms of of counterfactuals, what might have happened, but also to put into a sort of matrix that the Ottomans didn't not win because it rained. Lots of other explanations, lots of other factors, the defence of the city of Vienna, provisioning success, logistical decisions and so on. But it's something which we always need to be paying attention to. It's something that should get mentioned. There's a context for all major significant military assaults. I mean, we're talking, in fact, this week, there's been some coverage about D-Day and how D-Day in 1944 had been delayed to open in the only window in June 1944 that would have suited. And in fact, a postmistress on the west coast of Ireland who happened to also have a weather station was crucial in giving Eisenhower the information that Going on the 5th of June was the wrong day. So we commemorate D-Day every year, we think about the assaults on the Normandy beaches, but you know, with the wrong cloud cover, the wrong kinds of storms, the wrong kinds of winds, you reduce your chances of success. And, you know, ecologies, the natural world, all are important. We just don't think about that often as historians. It's all about individuals, normally men, making great decisions. And actually, it's much more complicated and much more interesting than that. So you mentioned
1: there, of course, the relationship between ecology and empire and As you say, we tend to think about things like European colonisation in this early modern period as being about individuals and about political impact. Can you talk a bit about its impact on ecology?
2: Well, all imperial expansions are ecological projects. The Roman conquest of Egypt wasn't just because Cleopatra had a cute nose or was a woman who deserved to be put in her place, it was about Romans taking control of the great wheat basket and grain basket of the Mediterranean. That's what Egypt really represented. So the expansion of any military and imperial project is always about bringing land and labour force under control. So with the expansion into the Americas, of course, there's all of the things that we perhaps normally think about. But the single biggest transformation of the crossings of the Atlantic and the discovery of the so-called new world is an integration of global trade networks, redistribution of global foods and crops. I mean, for example, I write in my book, when we think about pineapples, you might think about tropical Africa or Southeast Asia and peanuts, you know, the satay sauces of Thai food, chilies, obviously, we think of with India, with tomatoes, you know, very Spanish and Italian. And, you know, the potatoes absolutely associate with our Sunday roast here, you know, that's one of ours. All these crops are from the Americas. All of them play very important roles in redistribution, not just of foods, but therefore of all the other things that move around when we distribute. So things like pathogens you know, we learned that with the pandemic, that when people hop on airplanes, they don't just bring their hand luggage and their memories with them, they bring nasties as well that can spread disease. And so when we think about the engagements with the new world, probably the starting point is not just about Europeans pushing indigenous peoples off their land, which they did, and a brutal treatment and racism, which are all absolutely central and important too, but it's also about the ecological transformation. So the Europeans bring with them whole series of livestock that are not indigenous to the Americas, things like cows and pigs and sheep. And those animals are responsible and the way in which they're pastured, they lead to deforestation, they bring with them foodstuffs that those kinds of animals particularly will need they bring new techniques for treatment of the land, and they bring weeds and parasites and everything else with them. And that process of change is completely fundamental. So it's right that we focus on the human experiences, the population of North America falls by around about 95% over the course of the first 100 years, partly because disease, which has had a lot of attention, partly because indigenous populations are overworked, partly because the diet's that are introduced to the Americas changes the ways in which people eat and what they eat. And so clinical obesity, problems about dietary processes, organ failures, are very closely followed and spotted by commentators at the time, who see that one of the challenges about the European engagement with the new world is the way which people's diets are changing. And local leaders say that before the Americans came, we used to eat more healthily. And look what we eat now. And that makes us old, ill, fat, and we die young. So, you know, those kinds of changes, I think, aren't quite hard to quantify sometimes. But clearly the change to forest cover, to vegetation, to livestock, and, you know, for every winner, European people, land, animals, etc., there are losers. So ecologies, plants, insects, local domestic animals, as well as local populations, human ones are shunted out to one side and I think that's such an important part of the engagement with the Americas and something reasonably similar happens with European engagement with South Asia but it's a different process there because the societies that are engaged with and the ecologies are for all sorts of reasons turn out to be more robust and harder to sort of overlay.
1: European imperialism as you've just said led to this huge loss of life among the indigenous population. One suggestion among historians has been that what is known as the great dying among the indigenous itself led to climate change. Do you think this is an argument that can be sustained?
2: We all know we live in complex ecosystems, food chains and so on. So impacts anywhere along the chain have a direct impact. The problem is, is that it's a single study that you know, got lots of newspaper headlines about 18 months ago to say that the great dying, it was called this large loss of life, meant that Obviously, there are fewer people and obviously that meant that forests grew back. Obviously, that would have changed the carbon dioxide quotients in the atmosphere and obviously had a direct impact, therefore, on climate and weather systems. But the problem is, I think, it's threefold. First, it doesn't quite work that way. So if you have population loss in one part of the world, there's population replacement in others. So we live in a world where you can't just identify a single point of contact or point of weakness or strength. Second, the challenge is about correlating the data. So although it sounds like a perfectly plausible idea, the major losses of life in the New World, or so-called New World in North America, are in the 1540s. There's a coccolizzi pandemic that kills probably 80% of the population. And then another series of diseases in the 1570s that kills probably 35% of who's left. But anyway, there's a kind of arc of when those major population setbacks take place But those don't correlate with what we see with carbon dioxide and with what we think vegetation is doing. That's one thing. Second, it doesn't quite work that if you get rid of lots of people, the forests suddenly grow back. It takes quite a long time for forests to grow and for new plants to establish themselves and to start belching out different levels of oxygen into the atmosphere. Those things take quite a long time. So there is a match between these two processes. But as I say in my book, and every environmental historian will having their first paragraph of any essay and any person to their finals would say correlation and causation are two different things. So just because these things happen at roughly the same time doesn't mean that they're linked. And in fact, while we might see reforestation in the Americas, there's a lot of evidence that says we see a lot of deforestation in South Asia, for example. So that should end up roughly in the same place. But Actually, what we see in the late 1500s, early 1600s, is some very dramatic swings. And those are almost certainly related to solar activity, and solar minima, to volcanic eruptions, to the El Niño-La Niña climate signal, which is the most important climate signal on Earth, and to things like the American Meridional overturning current. So the AMOC, which is the big signal that changes the Gulf Stream, it affects those kinds of things. So it's true, if you knock out Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions of people, there's bound to be an impact. Of course, there will be, but that's not the primary driver of the big picture stuff that we see. I'm sure I haven't spoken to the researchers behind this project, but quite often the press will run with lines that over dramatize historical research. And it's boring to be the person that pours the cold water and says, Hang on a minute, maybe we should just take stock. It's no shot across the researchers' bows. But, you know, I just think some of those things. In the search for headline, it sort of looks more dramatic than it really is. But there's something in it, but maybe not quite as profound as it might first seem.
1: When thinking about the history of European colonialism from this kind of perspective, it also throws up a kind of sense of counterfactual possibilities. You describe in your book how the late 16th century conditions in North America were so bad that actually Europeans didn't necessarily think it was worth staying. Can you give some sort of sense of what the environmental challenges were that they faced?
2: Well, those reports tend to be written by bureaucrats and functionaries who are covering their own backsides, so you've always got to take them with a pinch of salt. But, you know, you have Spanish colonisers and important officials writing back to the King of Spain saying... Florida is so flipping cold, it's a total waste of time, money and energy to invest here for the future. And you know, you and I and listeners will think of Florida as quite a nice place to go on a summer holiday, or winter holiday, it's where oranges get grown, it's where you play golf in your retirement and get a nice suntan. So reading these things 500 years ago, saying Florida is so cold that it's unsurvivable in the winter, doesn't kind of make any sense to us. So the first question is, do we have empirical evidence that can show that it's a lot colder? Or is this just someone who wants to get back home because, as any Tudor historian knows, you want to be as close to the king as possible if you want to become rich and famous. And if you're parked off somewhere miles away, then you lose influence. So there are all sorts of ways in which sometimes these reports, we need to treat them with a pinch of salt. But having said that, when we do start to gather information from things like tree ring data, it looks like the first decade of the 17th century, so this, from about 1601 for the next 10 years, that's the coldest 10-year period in the Northern Hemisphere over the course of 2000 years. So there obviously is something that affects and makes changes happen. In this particular case, a series of four major volcanic eruptions from 1585 up until about 1600, bring about a whole series of ecological short term shocks. And it doesn't take much, you know, we've seen in the news recently, it doesn't take much to have supply chain disruption, closing a canal here and there for a few days let alone big pandemics that leave everything and people in the wrong place at the wrong time, things can cascade down very quickly. So there obviously is a challenge. But, you know, when you start to accumulate what all travellers going out to the Americas start to say, you build up a picture that just looks very unusual. And it looked unusual for them. So you have lots of Spaniards crossing the Atlantic who say, look, I've read my Aristotle. I've read all the geographers from the ancient world. I can see that we can tell that the latitude of Florida and the Caribbean you know, it's roughly speaking, same level as Southern Europe. So it should be the same temperature, and yet it's bloody freezing. So not only are we disconcerted by that, it makes us wonder whether all these Greek scholars, physicians, philosophers knew what the hell they were talking about, because they're wrong. You know, you have lots of gentlemen scholars, for want of a better word, writing back and saying things like, you know, animals in the Americas are just smaller, and they reproduce less, and they're less vigorous, and dogs don't bark. And, you know, humans find it difficult to survive. So that world in which they're stepping into feels very, very different to them. And it feels different enough to enough people to think that there is something that is unsettling and unusual. And that might be to do with changes, too. I mean, one of the things that happens with Europeans and with all empires is overexploitation. Again, we tend to think of sustainability as being something really new and we're the first generation to worry about that. You know you know that from your studies, not just of the Tudor world, but of your travels in South Asia too. Sustainability and harvesting and looking after resources is absolutely fundamental in almost all societies in all periods. But what tends to happen with empires is that there's a rush to get to the best bits, the best bits of land, the best metals, the best resources. You fill your boots as quickly as you can. And that leads to overexploitation very, very quickly. So, topsoils erode, you cut down all the forests, you change climates. And one of the things that some Europeans were deeply anxious about was that the human imprint on the Americas was making a difficult world climatologically worse. In particular, cutting down forests was changing rainfall patterns. And people thought about that because ancient Greeks, People in ancient India were writing about if you cut down lots of trees, you change where the rain falls and how much rain comes. So the idea that humans were that master of their own downfall and were making their new gardens of Eden into more dangerous and less productive places that yielded less was something that fell into an intellectual hinterland that people recognised that humans are our own worst enemies and something that has an obvious resonance today too. It should be easy to work out to be sustainable. Turns out when you have rewards and incentives that are not correctly correlated, people make very, very stupid short-term decisions that compromise the long-term futures.
0: Cool Fact. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: One thing I want to pick up on is this idea that you mentioned earlier, that we learnt about the fact that people carry pathogens around, and we see a colonizer at work beyond the Europeans in this period, a much smaller one. You talk in your book about the way in which we need to understand this process of transfer and movement of peoples in the early modern period as being one in which insects are also reshaping the world, aren't they?
2: Yeah, insects, pathogens, plants, weeds, you know, you name it. I guess humans attract the headlines for obvious reasons and pathogens likewise, because it's so terrifying. But, you know, immunological naivety of populations that have been, to all intents and purposes, cut off from the other main three continents of the world, so Africa, Europe and Asia, produce huge numbers of casualties through pandemic disease. And those who survive, of which all of us descend today, you know, all of our ancestors survived the Black Death otherwise we wouldn't be here, and other diseases too, meant that in contact with new peoples, we brought with us things that we could cope with. not great having some of these diseases too, but when you bring things like salmonella or smallpox to populations that have no immunity at all, then death rates are absolutely enormous. Having said that, there's some amazing research now because of genetic materials and being able to look at mitochondrial DNA. We have a much clearer idea of what it is that kills people, But, you know, one of the things in the new world is not just disease. It's that if you are calorie deficient, if you are not eating enough, your immune systems are much weaker. So, again, that correlation between diet availability, dietary change, overwork. You have the new colonisers who put the almost the first thing Columbus writes back about the populations in the Caribbean is that there's an unlimited labour force who are going to be easy to control and manipulate to do the hard labour and hard work for you. But if you work people very hard and you don't feed them properly, their exposure to disease can be fatal quicker than it might otherwise be. So those diseases, they move around. Some of them are waterborne, some of them are airborne, but some are carried by insects. And the biggest killer, other than smallpox, is malaria. And malaria is the thing that establishes itself in the Caribbean and the southern part of the United States, or establishes itself properly in the 1670s and 1680s, probably as a result of a very heavy set of El Nino events, where you find unusual temperatures because of what's happening in the Pacific, the evaporation processes and rates. And clearly when people are being shipped across the Atlantic against their will in vast volumes or voluntarily, you're bringing lots of things with you. And if you can transport mosquitoes in particular or other pathogens, then if they can establish themselves, then it can be curtains. And what that seems to do is it changes the dynamics of our own relationships with humans and with each other and with race. So for the first hundred years or so of European colonisation of the Americas, a large number of the people who are brought across the Atlantic are from Europe. In fact, in Barbados, until the middle of the 1600s, about 75% of the population there are white Europeans and they're indentured labourers, indentured states, the kinds of people escaping from the ravages of the wars of religion the civil wars all the kind of things you've talked about so eloquently on your podcast Susie but what then happens is that because of malaria it's always been quite a precarious existence to survive across the Atlantic but suddenly there's a bonanza for people who work out that for some reason some populations from West Africa seem to be able to survive infection to malaria and that's because of genetic mutations that happen with many Bantu speaking populations between three and four thousand years ago. So ironically, many of those people carted around in change, deprived of their liberty, and not just their liberty, their children's liberty, victims of astonishing persecution, violence, and the kind of endemic legacies of racism that are still unfortunately prevalent today, that ironically, the racial superiority of many of these enslaved populations allows them to be able to survive exposure to malaria when the white population's vast majority don't reach their 18th birthday and most don't reach their fifth birthday. So that inversion of how ideas about racial superiority and inferiority get established are connected very closely to volumes of transatlantic slavery that boom after the middle of the 17th century. That's the period of mass enslavement and a mass enforced migrations across the Atlantic. It's of course all completely the wrong way around. In fact, one of the questions I ask early on in this part of my book is, if the Europeans were so keen on plantation complexes for sugar, tobacco and so on, why didn't they just establish plantations in West Africa? It's a lot closer to Europe. There have been sugar plantations in Madeira, in Sao Tome, in West Africa. Again, one of the ironies is the transatlantic slave trade is a symptom of African political strength rather than weakness. So because states in Africa are able to keep the Europeans at bay, it means that they don't allow Europeans to come and acquire land or buy land or take land or steal land and grow whatever they want for their own markets. Those kinds of ways, I think, of trying to factor back in what happens, where, when and how are hugely significant. And again, it probably is not not something that I had realised before about the level of how European settlement in the Americas is replaced over time and then very dramatically by a kind of surge in the demand for labour. And, you know, unfortunately, the best labour, if you can overlook human indignity, is labour that is classified as free. That means you buy someone's freedom and you never release them. And we have a terrible legacy with that, like I said, in Europe. But that's a similar process that happens in many, many parts of the world and has happened in many parts of the world in the past too.
1: Yes, I didn't know until recently that the Canary Islands had been a place where sugar plantations were established for 100 years. And it didn't last, it didn't work. But that we know that both the indigenous people of the Canary Islands and West Africans were being imported to work in those sugar mills. Right,
2: but of course, human suffering has a priority. But you know, in fact, the Canaries, located by some environmental scholars, is the first place of proper human ecocide because of the introduction, not just of sugar, but also of rabbits. And rabbits ended up destroying all the vegetation and it changes the ecological balances of all the animals, including marine life. If you turn up onto so-called virgin soils, virgin lands, and you transform them, then there are very dramatic consequences. And, you know, and again, one of the things I look at in my book is some of these, for example, the parallel between the colonization by Scandinavians of Iceland and Greenland from about 800 onwards, with similar processes of colonisation in the South Pacific at exactly the same time, probably to do with changing wind conditions, with changing currents, all to do with, again, a period, this one known as the medieval warm period, where what happens when humans come to places they haven't touched before tends to be catastrophic. So deforestation, introduction of new animals, pathogens take hold, there's elite competition for the best land that creates conditions of inequality. In the case of Iceland, that's solved by the fact that The first big colonisers are all landlords and all magnates. And the way that the Icelanders solve that, or the community in Iceland solve that, is by establishing a parliament to allow all these big dogs to be able to reach agreements with each other rather than participation of allowing everybody to have a vote or let alone allowing women, who, by the way, in the United Kingdom get the vote after women in Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan. You know, these things take thousands of years to lead to real equalities. But functioning governments that set up in places that have had their ecologies transformed is the kind of symptom of the fact that change needs to be managed. I think in the kind of taking on new territories, looking at new ecologies, whether in the Canaries or otherwise, it's not just about what does that mean to the human condition and indigenous peoples although those who have been written out of history for a long time or about gender written out of history for a long time? But also that whole portfolio of plant life, animal life, pathogens, including, like I said, into the marine system, because it's not just land and oceans. The natural world works in so-called harmony. And I suppose on that, we should also probably recognise that the natural world is not a blissful, happy cuddly one where animals all, you know, say good morning to each other and everyone gets on. Animal kingdoms, animal worlds are all to do with similar kinds of processes of expansion, exploitation, of disrupting balances. But that's something which I think needs to be factored into all of our discussions.
1: Now, when most people think about this period, the thing that will come to mind is the so-called Ice Age, which has been considered responsible for all manner of social and economic and environmental effects. What evidence is there, Peter, for the Little
2: Ice Age? It's a good question. There are two answers. The first answer is lots, and the second answer is not lots. Geoffrey Parker wrote a fantastic book about the Little Ice Age. One of the questions then is, when does this start and when does it end? I won't bore you or, and certainly none of your listeners, with... The kinds of intensities of discussion we have about periodization in history, about what counts, where do you start a period, but it probably won't surprise people to know that most people will start to date the Little Ice Age from roughly 1700 until roughly 1800, or maybe 1650 until roughly 1800. These nice round numbers that have no particular reference to anything of any particular historical significance. But clearly, what does happen is that this is an era of huge change. And I think you probably lead out the troops by saying that those changes which are most dramatic are things like new technologies, the ways in which armour improves, the way that ballistics improve, means that the way people fight turns out differently. While it might be interesting to think about wind speeds and currents and, you know, coldness, which are all part of the mix, Probably more important is the volatilities we have in Europe, for example. So between 1500 and 1700, Europe and European powers are at war for 95% of those years. And that's not to be explained by the fact it's a little bit chilly or a little bit warm because, you know, we're having a chilly winter this year and so far in Northern Europe anyway, we're holding okay. So I think there are lots of ways in which one can see change happening at interstate level, at human level, at government level that is separate to thinking about climate. The sort of 1600 onwards for the next 150, 200 years, it's a time of astonishingly rapid urbanisation across large parts of Europe. But having said all of that, there are several important kind of fracture points where you probably have to think quite hard about what's going on and why. One of those is to do with this very cold period between the 1590s and the 1610s, the so-called time of Troubles in Russia. Lots of indicators have shown this as unusually cold. And, you know, coldness in itself is not that much of a problem. You have to burn more wood so it's more expensive. But what does happen is that it affects crops and your crop yields change if you have bad harvests. And if you have bad harvests, then you have inflation. And if you have inflation, you tend to have widening inequalities, and quite often you have persecutions of minorities. So you see, for example, there's a data set that looks at persecutions of Jewish communities in Europe between 1100 and 1800, and a change in average temperature, growing season temperature of a third of a degree has a measurable correlation with persecutions of Jews. In this period, you know, you might look at persecution of women, where witch trials, some estimates put, the numbers of women put on trial in the millions, which is obviously probably a little bit toppy. But the kinds of blame put on the fact that women must be interfering with the weather to make things colder than normal and more rain and bad harvests partly you can look at through the prism of is the weather changing, but also partly are the human dynamics of how we live shuttling around because of urbanisation, because there are more people than before and that means that there are more mouths to feed, that means we're more vulnerable to change. And so when you have these windows in the 1560s, 1570s, locusts being excommunicated by the Pope Pius V, or 100 years later, times of troubles, or in the 1630s, 1640s, the wars of religion across Europe This is a world that's in total chaos. It would stand to reason to think that small changes to rainfall patterns, to harvests, to the cold must be part of it. But, you know, there are lots of parts of the world that don't go through shock. The Netherlands, for example, or Japan, they don't see the same levels of pressure. So... Probably one would look to human error, pilot error, for being the primary driver of some of these important changes. Like I said, new technologies, the ways in which you could be over-rewarded for taking on your enemies or thinking you're going to win. So there are lots of things that within the Little Ice Age that are important indicators. It's not that it doesn't exist, it's how do you use that information and how do you quantify what its actual impact is. Some of the things that scholars used to write about with the Little Ice Age that there are lots of pictures of people in the snow, You know, that's partly because you count pictures of people in the snow. You tend not to count pictures of people in the sunshine because the pictures in the snow look unusual. But that might be just because people's tastes, they wanted pictures of people in the snow. I think that the Little Ice Age, it's a really important period, but it needs to be just set alongside what's happening in a careful context.
1: Yes, and to pick up on the witchcraft point, I mean, I'd probably say... The best evidence suggests there are 90,000 trials and about half of those are executed over a period of a couple of hundred years. And exactly as you said earlier, what we have in the 1590s, the 1620s and the 1660s peaks in witch trials, and they correlate with periods of bad harvests and poor economic conditions, but don't necessarily cause. Them. But as you
2: know, witch trials in the Protestant part of Germany fall off and stop much sooner than they do in the Catholic part of Germany. And there's no difference when you're spread out over three or four miles or 20-30 miles in terms of temperatures, weather conditions and so on. So the cultural side of this is also important and needs to be explained. So I think it's that this is all happening, but you probably wouldn't pass through too many exam hoops without trying to do what we historians do, which is to say, look, I understand this is what the picture looks like. I need to now look at it and work out why there are no witch trials, or so few witch trials, for example, in Ireland. Why is it that in some parts of Europe we see persecutions of women off the charts and others that are very close, not? And if that's not to do with weather, then what is it to do with? What are the cultural drivers or the legal processes that allow those kinds of things to happen? So it is important, you have to correlate the big picture and the small picture too. There are parallels we find with other minorities that also end up being persecuted in South Asia, in the Middle East, when you have unusual conditions. And those are really to do with the fact of trying to find someone to blame for when things go wrong. And people at the top of the social and political pyramid and economic pyramid tend to be men. They tend to be elite men. And so finding people who've got the least amount of pushback to you, it's quite an effective political tool, unfortunately.
1: One question I want to ask you about climactic stress in this period is the extent to which you think we should see it as a factor in political change. In China, for example, or Southeast Africa, you look all around the world in your work.
2: Yeah, it's always there. I think it's in the hierarchy of factors that each historian will place that higher or lower. I mean, for example, we have a big turnover in China in the 1640s, the fall of the Ming dynasty, and it's replacement with the Qing. And this happens at a time where we can tell from all sorts of factors, both from climate archives in terms of climate related scientific materials, but also being written about at the time. But the truth is that probably most historians would stick with what the traditional explanation of the fall of the Ming is, is if you cut your services and your budgets, your ability to spot problems and to deal with them has declined. That's taken the course of 30, 40 years. Inefficient spending by the court, over-lavish ceremonials, incompetent rulers, the bureaucracy that's dysfunctional, lots of petty competitions that you haven't managed properly. But those things are probably the more important factors but I think it's just difficult to talk about the change of the Ming without talking about pandemics, disease and its impacts, without talking about impacts on harvests and yields. And of course, in the pre-industrial world, the vast majority of state revenues in every society are from agricultural production. And that means that there's huge sensitivity to those kinds of changes. And again, you know, it's not that hard, I think, for everybody to understand that if you have your household budget that's more or less predictable all the time, and your expenses are more or less predictable, if there's a shock to one, because of warfare, your expenses go up, or because your yields go down and you don't bring home as much as you thought, then that dislocation can be survived, it can be managed. Mughal rulers are quite good at managing that for one way or another. But if you get it wrong, or worse, if your revenues fall and your expenses go up, then you're in real trouble. And so with the Ming, as had happened with Yuan dynasty before them, that combination of multiple factors means that the stress is there that the results in the cracks going from being something that is manageable to something that's existential. My own view is that it's just important whether one's writing about the Tudors on Henry VIII or the Ming, is that there needs to be some nod page to Environment and that doesn't just mean climate change. You know, my work is also about the natural world as a whole. So, like I said at the beginning, it's about where does the oak come from to build those great galleons? You know, how do you harvest your forests? And, you know, under Henry VIII, for example, specifically. A real anxiety about deforestation in England and preservation orders to try to make sure that the crown has first call on natural resources. We see that in Venice around the same time, where as well as shipbuilding, wood is not just used for houses and for ships, but also heat source to make glass and to make metal. And the Venetian authorities deeply concerned that because of unsustainable forestry practices, Venice is not just at a military Disadvantage, but it's potentially its whole industrial production is compromised. So I think it's about where does the natural world fit alongside the intrigues between rival people, between sort of state systems and bureaucracies and legal stuff. And the things that we historians have been quite good at working on for years is just making sure that we pass go every time and think about resources, calories, water, sanitation, disease, climate, weather, rain, yields, very basic logistical stuff. So, I mean, in a way, some of the history that I'm most interested in is the really boring stuff. It's what gets grown where and by who, rather than who's trying to knife each other in the corridors of power. But, you know, I understand in Netflix, that's the bit that's most exciting, rather than the rural things and the logistical things and the basic vanilla trade. Of, for example, Tudor acquisition of timber from the Baltics. And what does that do in terms of Baltic political and economic strength The Baltics open up trade routes through to Genoa to be importing, exporting all sorts of goods, including food as a result of the fact that there's more money coming into their systems. What does that mean for Baltic's relations with central parts of Russia? You know, it's not no coincidence that Peter the Great eventually builds a massive great new capital city up on the Baltic coast. So all those things, I just think, need to be coloured in a little bit more. And I absolutely should pay my debts to historians like you, Susie, and to many others who do write about ecology, the environment and climate. So it's not like this is brand new. And there are lots of people who do it. It's just in the noise of how we talk about things, perhaps there's not the prominence that that scholarship gets that it maybe could or should have
1: what you've told us today gives some indication of the breadth as well as the depths of research we've only talked about a couple of hundred years your work spans many hundreds more congratulations on writing such an enormously wonderful and insightful book professor frank pan thank you so much for coming on to the podcast it's been a real pleasure Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Not Just Tudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released.